invited us, first of all, to push plastic chopsticks through two-inch wooden board. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. You cannot do it because it's softer, it breaks. He says, no, you don't do it like that. And he takes one of them also out of a package and he goes into this state and he presses it right through. That's what he was teaching his 80 students. Mm. Some of them could press a plastic, brittle chopstick halfway through two inch thickness of wood. We've got it on camera, Mm. Uh, but no more. And he complained, he says, you know, the reason I'm asking you, Lawrence, to make a film about me to show to the world is because we people who can master these forces are getting less and less. It's as if we're disappearing in the light of science throughout the planet. Mm. And none of my students are anywhere near as powerful as me. And I am nowhere near as powerful as my master was Mm. long since dead. But he did some amazing things like lighting newspapers from a distance, pushing mm-hmm. chopsticks through tables, pulling things into his hands, like a packet of cigarettes from a distance like that. Yeah. Cigarettes yeah. Being touched. So that completely, you know, these are things we've read about and heard about in fiction and literature since we were babies. But to actually see it before one's eyes was astounding. Yeah. You got to accentuate the positive. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just fad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? Hello and welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always wonderful to be with you all again. And boy, do I have a fascinating conversation for you today with the beautiful Dr. Lawrence Blair. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Who's in Bali. And please remember, if you're liking the show, as I say this every time, but I'm going to say it again, hit that subscribe button, tell your friends about it, leave me a comment, press the like button, all that sort of stuff. I know you hear it from everybody on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, I've got to say it just to remind you. Well, my good friend David Norman introduced me to Lawrence, who is in Bali, a couple of hours away from me in Sydney. And the synchronicity was amazing. You know, your documentary, I'm going to go into your bio in a minute, but your documentary, I have um, seen, seen snippets of it for years and years. And I'd always wondered because people have taken bits out and popped it up on various platforms. And we never knew exactly where it was coming from. Bali's internet is not always great. So sometimes Lawrence is going to freeze every now and then. And uh, and then David, my good friend David, has always spoken about your mother, Lydia Duncan, quoting her often. And I never knew that there was this connection between this documentary that I had adored and him talking about Lydia Duncan until recently when he went to Bali and saw you. And he said, Lydia's son, who made this documentary. And I'm like, oh, my God, the puzzle pieces are falling in together. Yes. <laughs> yes, her voice is even on it, by the way, because uh, obviously we wanted as cheap a voice as possible. She was trained as an actress. So her voice begins the series. Of course, I shot it with my brother and we made it with my brother. 
but she went on to be a powerful philosopher in Australia later on, as David will have told you. Well, yes, he's forever quoting her. My friend Lydia said this, my friend Lydia said that. But let me let me just read a little bit about, it's quite an extensive bio and I'm, I tried to cut it down a bit. So you know a bit about Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence Blair is an explorer, filmmaker, author, and public speaker on the peoples and creatures of Indonesia. A resident of Bali, he has assisted and led marine exhibitions throughout the archipelago since 1978. His onboard companions have included Mick Jagger, Jerry Hall, Sir Peter Scott, Ron and Valerie Taylor. For people that are in the US, you might not know who they are. They're famous marine explorers down under. Sir Michael Cowdery, Baron von Schneck, I don't even know how to say his name, Larry Summers, Richard Dawkins, and numerous luminaries less publicly known in the fields of science. Lawrence earned his doctorate at the Lancaster University in England with a thesis which explored the definition of the field of psychoanthropology. This was subsequently published as a highly successful book, Rhythms of Vision, The Changing Patterns of Belief. Lawrence is a writer, presenter and co-producer with his late brother, Lorne, of the PBS and BBC TV adventure series called Ring of Fire, which is the documentary I was telling you about introduced by Richard Gere, which won two Emmy Awards, aired in over 60 nations. Lawrence also wrote the companion book, Ring of Fire, describing his outstanding 10 years of filming in Indonesia and his explorations. So this is from another article that somebody else wrote, and I thought it was beautiful. It was like in the early 70s, Lawrence Blair and his brother Lorne set off on one of the most arduous adventures of recent time to follow the steps of Alfred Russell Wallace through the many hundreds of the 14,000 islands of the Indonesian archipelago. What once began as a single trip funded by, uh, with 2,000 pounds by Ringo Starr's money to chart the ancient last remaining king of Sulawesi. Now, how do you say that, Lawrence? Sulawesi. Sulawesi, got it right. Sulawesi Toraja tribe back to the stars they believed they descended from on flying saucers while sailing with a tribe to fill the Anu Islands greater bird of paradise turned into a 19-year odyssey of self-discovery across the wild gardens of earth's otherwise known ring of fire. So in 2005 and 2006 you wrote and presented and co-produced for Sky TV UK at the five-part series Myths, Magic and Monsters. And you've also lectured widely on international radio and TV on psychoanthropology, tribal mysticism and the secrets of Indonesia. The remastered version of Ring of Fire series is now available on iTunes. Is that right? It's, it's on iTunes? Yes, thank you. Yes, absolutely. As well as film Bali Island of Dogs. It is an island of dogs, isn't it? And all the dogs. <laughs> talk about the upcoming film. Look again for the International Film Festival Circuit on short film category about mystical, the mystical side of nature. So this is something that you've just presented. Look again. Yes, it's something we haven't finished we haven't finished yet, but it will be finished within the next month. We shot it um just after Christmas this year in the Forgotten Islands, which quite close to Australia and eastern Indonesia, 
it looked as if it's going to be another nature film about underwater. This would be an interesting one with enormous and very tiny animals. It's about the cutting edge of the new biological sciences, about things like quantum botany, distributed intelligence, emergent behavior when you have tons of similar little creatures all behaving like one animal. It's about consciousness in nature and in the planet, something that was understood well, of the planet, something understood by the ancient peoples and still by tribal peoples, but are rather rejected as nonsense by Western science. And of course, Western science has poo-pooed all this superstitious stuff that they think is superstitious when tribal peoples talk about gods and goddesses, these energies in nature. But then just about 100 years ago, they came up with something far more Alice in Wonderland in the way of quantum mechanics, which of course maintains all sorts of crazy things, which it turns out are actually here and now. Uh, for instance, uh, entanglement is responsible. Entanglement is this extraordinary thing of how you can have two twinned particles. If a change takes place in one, it's twin mirrors that change anywhere in the universe instantaneously. And how you can have two particles in the same place at the same time, that doesn't seem to make much sense. But it's actually now being realized that it's really responsible for how animals navigate on their great trans-trip migrations and how we think memory, volition. So there's a vast awareness and incredibly, incredibly sophisticated, wonderful magic going on in the living world, in this planet all the time. And the yeah. irony that we begin with the movie is simply that now that we're cooking the planet, uh, we're just beginning to understand a whole new dimension, not just of how life behaves, but of actually what it might be, what it is. And it's easily, more easily discoverable through the personal heart than it is through any amount of objective science. Oh, Lawrence, so beautifully said. So beautifully said. Just uh, absolutely. And just to finish your bio, you've got a couple of books, Ring of Fire, The Indonesian Odyssey, and uh, Rhythms of Vision, The Changing Patterns of Belief. And your website is drlawrenceblair.com. And you've also got lawrenceblairstudios.com. David sent me a photograph of you. It goes in and out. Of you in front of this massive sacred geometry ball in your house. So you're really looking into the sacred geometric codes and um, shapes within nature at the moment. Yeah. Well, not just now. Part of my doctoral thesis in Lancaster University hundreds of years, of years ago was Pythagorean mysticism. And that involves numbers and shapes and forms. And I was always a dunce at mathematics. But to understand these shapes and forms that he talks about, and which that his people use as meditational devices, I began building them. First of all, out of matchsticks, then out of straws, then out of glass pipettes, and it completely blew my mind. So there in London, at the end of my doctoral degree, I began making a buck or two by making these as meditational devices for people's houses. And then when the book Rhythms of Vision, which was quite a big deal in the mid-70s, there weren't many books about mysticism and science locking each other together like that. Another one was would have been Lyle Watson's Supernature, for those of us old enough to remember it, a powerful book. Um, in Los Angeles, I began making these sacred geometrical shapes, crystalline forms with lasers, with pure light. 
and it was extremely exciting because you could step inside them. And just these patterns, these particular patterns, there are only five known three-dimensional forms that have these properties. They all share these extraordinary properties. They all touch the edge of an invisible sphere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the five Pythagorean solids or crystallographic forms. And from those spring everything that can exist in three-dimensional space. And it was great fun to begin making those in lasers where you could stand inside them in pure light. Uh, but that's how I burnt, burnt my house down and just escaped from it. So just to answer in rather a lengthy way your question here, when uh, COVID struck, um, my normal bread and butter over recent years has so I had to scratch my head to think, how am I going to survive over these next few years? So I decided to revert back to what I haven't done since my house burnt down, which is making sacred geometry, a big <coughs> Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome for the local hotels and nightclubs. That's oh. one of the things I've been doing recently, apart from making other film. So yes, I love that stuff. It's the most beautiful, beautiful meditation to draw you in to the illusory world to the difference between the world of maya and what lies behind it in the sense of what is actually there you know our brain is in complete darkness all the time uh, we see light but that is only through these filtered vibrationary frequencies of our nervous system but it's odd to think that this light seeing brain is itself enclosed in complete darkness ah uh, that's really interesting lawrence um we lost you for a bit of bit of that but um hopefully i can edit this but you said that when COVID hit and you couldn't and then we lost you you couldn't do what you were normally doing which was what uh, doing the circuit lecturing and things like that was That's that right on the, on the ships on the big ships oh, that travel southeast asia all the way to india and beyond uh as so i've been doing for the last few years uh well that, that all dried up couldn't do it anymore so i had to rack my brains as to how to be a little more creative and one of the right. things i came up with Reverting to sacred geometry and making uh, installations for hotels and nightclubs here in Bali, uh, which have I've you, just finished one. Have you visited the Pyramids of Chi down near Ubud? The Pyramids of Chi down near Ubud, just north of Ubud. Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, I'll have to introduce you to Peter. He's an Australian businessman. You know about it. I know all sorts of wonderful things going on here in Bali. But I tend to be a, a bit of a stick in the mud and work on my own stuff. For I a while. know, I know, but I'm just thinking that maybe you could do some sacred geometry shapes for the, for him. Anyway, anyway, I'll introduce you. Uh, it, it is part of sacred geometry, of course. The exact uh, geometry of Giza pyramid is, of course, directly related to sacred geometry. Absolutely, absolutely. And what do you think the application of the sacred ge geometric shapes will be in the future when we understand physics better? Well, the main application is the great late Buckminster Fuller, who developed geodesic domes, mm. which is the thing that all the hippies had fun living in, and which NASA subsequently used as the basic structures to build their research facilities in the Arctic and the Antarctic. And that's because they contain the greatest amount of space for the minimum amount of surrounding material. They're based directly on the five Pythagorean sacred solids. So they're architecturally sophisticated, simple, and at the same time. 
and they're very much the way nature itself works. If you look at things like the skeletons of radiolaria, these tiny little plankton-like things that drift around the sea, it's also sacred geometry. And of course, sacred geometry is harmonics in music, proportions, and can explain in many ways the shifting in light spectrum that are used unconsciously by the great artists, and how everything really in the plant kingdom unfolds in these periodic harmonics. It's a very exciting music of the mind. Absolutely. Music of the mind. I love that. I love that. Well, let's go into the story of how you and Lorne set off on your Indonesian odyssey all those years ago in the 70s. Was it just the fancy of two young brothers wanting to explore the world? Yes, basically. Yeah. I would like to gussy it up into something more exciting, but no, it's as simple as that. And I mean, we were two young English schoolboys who were transported, thankfully, in the mid-50s by our parents to Mexico, where my stepfather was buying and selling and flying aeroplanes. So that's how we were uprooted from a horrible, boring, rather cruel educational system in the UK at the time to this fantastic country as Mexico was. So that was our first taste of ancient civilizations and jungles and tropical creatures and... Uh, uh, wonderful art forms. So when we eventually made it to Indonesia many years later, for other different story reasons, this was like Mexico to us multiplied by a hundred. I know in Australia it's not quite so special. It's your local Brighton. This is where you come up to have a holiday lying on the beach in Bali. But to us two English schoolboys, Bali, we didn't even want to visit the first five years of our filming here because we considered that a an island with an international hotel and an airport was beneath our dignity. But we were so wrong. You know, we were making uh, documentaries about the remotest tribal peoples. And we wanted to get to places where nobody had been before, or certainly where no missionaries or governments had contacted these people. But in fact, this became our home. Uh, it's been my home for the last 50 years. I lost my brother, as you know, in 1995, already quite a few years ago, 27 years ago, whatever it is, here in Bali. Uh, after having undergone tremendous adventures and just escaped with our lives from all sorts of situations in Borneo and New Guinea and the Malaccas, he falls down into an open manhole cover in the street in the evening, breaks his leg and dies two days later in the local hospital of a, um, well, either a blood clot or a marrow clot. Uh, he wasn't given an anticoagulant, which he should be given. So anyway, that, that, that's because people always ask, well, how did he die? And it's ironic when you see the film's ring of fire that this is how he died, falling into an open manhole cover, just a short one, a couple of feet deep here in Bali. But you don't really want to go to hospital here. You certainly didn't want to 20 years ago. It's a easier now. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, bit easier now. Well, actually, my daughter arrived there about a week ago, and the next day she was in hospital with Bali Belly. But uh, I think she had a good experience in the hospital, so it's uh, it's improved. <laughs> yes, it's amazing that Lorne that Lorne left so so early, left you alone to carry the the yeah. legacy. Did, so, have you been communicating with him in spirit? Do you feel his presence and feel him around you? No. I have to be honest with you, not like that. I have had many similar experiences. And we have in the family 
a, a certain dream, a predictive dream when somebody is about to die. But I had it, and uh, I had it with quite a few people. It's like of a giant tidal wave, and it had a certain taste to it. And uh, I remember having this when my grandfather died, and when my father, my step, was sufficient unto the day of the evil thereof. Two days later, her mother was dead, my grandmother. So there has been in the family for many generations a sense of predictive dreaming. And of course, my mum in Australia, what her specialty was, was in uh, dream therapy as well. By that, I mean, she would teach people how to remember their dreams, number one. And then after a while of doing this, you become sensitized to the fact that you might have a dream because you've eaten the wrong thing, your body is getting used to purifying the body. And then you might have a dream about an emotional purification that needs to take place, and on and on until you can recognize what these dreams are and your own personal symbolism, what they're trying to tell you. And then you begin recognizing predictive or prognosticatory dreams, which are really telling you about a broader picture. So, I, of course, I'm incredibly close to my brother in a way. I didn't have that dream with him. Nor did I have it with my mother. I was extremely close to both of them. But I can't honestly say I had it with them. But those slightly further away, grandparents, terribly vivid. And when I was living as I was at one point on the island of uh, Kodiak in Alaska, I was up there for about six months, and we were all a small community. We were an island separated from everywhere else in a very specific way at the time. I remember when a friend of mine died there. Uh, I didn't know him that well. I mean, at any end of the six months, but shortly beforehand, I had this tidal wave dream again. It's a big tidal wave coming, and it has this feeling about it. It's quite different from seeing a tidal wave. You know it. So indeed, uh, dreaming. Dreaming is like a window. If we can be conscious when we're asleep, or aware of being a conscious when we're asleep, because of course that side of us never goes to sleep, it's always there. Uh, that is our window into the inner world. That is our lifeline into the broader picture of what our life path is doing. So, and of course you've got this, uh, one of my films in the Ring of Fire series, uh, newly available on iTunes, as you say kindly. Our film in Ring of Fire, one of the films on the series, one of the films is called The Dream Wanderers of Borneo. And he's trying to track down a tribe of Dayaks called the Punan Dayaks, who were the great nomads who withdrew into the interior of the forest because they didn't believe in head hunting, least of all having their own heads hunted. So they became the free roving masters of the interior and famous amongst the other headhunting tribes, not just as collectors of special items they couldn't reach, but as dream wanderers. They believe they have two souls. The physical spark of life, this thing, this life force that carries us around in these bodies, and the dream wanderer, which can be cultivated in meditation and in conscious sleeping. And it's that that not only can guide them in the navigational crossroads of their lives, because they're nomads and they can't even see the sky, but in the broader crossroads and decisions of their personal lives. And that's why it's called the dream wanderers, because with training, they can release these dream wanderers in sleep and meditation 
to look a little further than us poor people trapped in these bodies can do. Yeah, I was doing that this morning, actually, in meditation. Yes, absolutely. Like like um, projecting their consciousness. What do you call it? Um, not astral projection. When you project uh, your astral. Not astral, yeah. but uh, remote viewing. Remote viewing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've uh, had many conversations with people about this. And I was doing a meditation this morning. And I was trying <laughs> trying to do an astral projection. And I wasn't doing it. I found myself still in my body. But then I was looking at my body sitting, sitting up on the bed. So I was in and out simultaneously. So it feels like there's two of you because you still feel like you're encased in your body, but you're also looking at yourself. And yeah, it's it's weird. It's really weird. I can't explain it. But yeah, it feels like two souls. It does. But it's almost like you're connecting to a part of you that's never really in the body. That's always witnessing you. Sorry, what did you say, Lawrence? Oh, I've lost you again. You've frozen too, Karen. Frozen, I'm yeah. I'm sure you'll come back. I might just... You have frozen on screen. I might just stop it for a second. Okay, we've just done a bit of tweaking on our tech and we've got a different vocal because uh, Lawrence was using those, um, you know, wireless earphones, but right. they, weren't, they weren't sounding great. So now we're using the audio, computer on the audio. Your spiritual education really came from the travels that you and your brother were doing throughout the archipelago, through, a, through the Ring of Fire. I mean, meeting, like the, the part of the, I don't know if I've seen the whole series, but the part that mesmerized me for years was meeting DJ, you know, the um, shaman, the healer who could use, who could focus his chi and do all those yes. amazing things. Do you want to talk about that, Lawrence? I could. Uh, first of all, I should say that I wouldn't say our education came from those amazing adventures in Indonesia. We were exposed to this sort of amazing stuff in Mexico beforehand. And we were, I think, uh, particularly I was through my mother exposed to this frame of thought, this frame of reference right. way back in my childhood. It sort of runs in the family. And she was a very courageous pursuer of truth against the dominant current of the time, which was very orthodox religion, very dry. However, at one point, my brother and I spent 11 months trying to find healers, wise men, power magicians in Indonesia. And we traveled all over the country and we found a few extraordinary people. Uh, We also found many charlatans. Uh, we found a few of the real McCoy, but of the real thing, very few of them, actually none, except for Dynamo Jack, were prepared to appear on camera. But he did eventually appear on camera for reasons explained in the book, by the way, Ring of Fire, uh, rather an interesting description of the whole history with him. And for a start, He didn't want to appear on camera because he says, you know, if you Westerners see what I'm doing, the first thing you will think of is, how does he do the trick? How is he conning us? And if I explain to them that if anybody spent as much time as I do, as I do, in this field, you would think I was a liar. He prefers to remain off camera. We got camera eventually made enormous. I mean, we've had millions of hits on YouTube about Dynamo Jack, and we call him Dynamo Jack because he says, Don't give my address or my name away. 
And uh, he did, he actually, he passed away at the beginning of COVID, not of COVID, so we lost him a couple of years ago. Um, but he was the most extraordinary person. He was one of the healers of President Suharto and of the generals of Indonesia. And we, my brother and I, followed him all the way across Java on various occasions, acting as his assistants, which involved holding the feet of his patients, grounding them, because they would thrash around on the table as he touched them, or didn't quite touch them, he held his hands above them. And if you asked Daniel Jack, well, what are you doing? He would say, well, hold my hand. He says, are you ready like this? Touch my hand. Yes, boom, he would deliver this powerful jolt of something like electricity. So we invited over a friend, uh, well, we invited a team of um, scientists over to Indonesia, which uh, appear in the film Myths, Magic and Monsters that you mentioned earlier on. And sure enough, they came over with all sorts of electrical equipment, with Gauss meters, with me measuring devices to make sure he didn't have some implant in him. We also took him to a completely clean hotel room that none of us had visited before. There was no possible way he could put a set up there. And he proceeded to collapse them at the knees by just touching them, boom, collapse them at the knees, which really made them pretty cross, polite way of putting it. And then he began lighting LED, light emitting diodes, bulbs with his fingers, all of which we have on camera. So these scientists who came to see him, convinced they would quickly uncover him as a fraud, went back home with their tail between their legs, puzzled about their beliefs, their biases challenged, their minds broadened. And he was a lovely, simple man, but he did do extraordinary things. He wasn't just a healer. He had practiced this form of qigong, which is an ancient Chinese system, passed down through the generations. And he says um, he had 80 patients, I mean, uh, students at the time in Java, but none of them were as powerful as him. But he invited us, first of all, to push plastic chopsticks through two-inch wooden board. Mm -hmm. You can't do it. You cannot do it because it's softer, it breaks. He says, no, you don't do it like that. And he takes one of them also out of a package, and he goes into this state and he presses it right through. That's what he was teaching his 80 students. Mm. Some of them could press a plastic, brittle chopstick halfway through two inch thickness of wood. We've got it on camera, mm. uh, but no more. And he complained, he says, you know, the reason I'm asking you, Lawrence, to make a film about me to show to the world is because we people who can master these forces are getting less and less. It's as if we're disappearing in the light of science throughout the planet. Mm. And none of my students are anywhere near as powerful as me. And I am nowhere near as powerful as my master was mm. long since dead. But he did some amazing things like lighting newspapers from a distance, pushing mm -hmm. chopsticks through tables, pulling things into his hands, like a packet of cigarettes from a distance like that. Yeah. Cigarettes he hasn't touched. So that completely, you know, these are things we've read about and heard about in fiction and literature since we were babies. But to actually see it before one's eyes was astounding. Yeah. And of course, it has existed in history and mythology, especially of Asia and the East since time immemorial. Well, there is no 
fire without smoke or smoke without fire. When he heard we'd shown this footage in public, he was very upset and refused all our future efforts to contact him again. As the years passed, we sadly resigned ourselves to never seeing him again. My brother Lorne never did, for by 1997 he was already dead when I again found myself with DJ, now treating me for an eye problem. Yeah, exactly. Your cat's having a bit of a sing in the background. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, well, the conversations I'm having on my show is very galactic and we're talking about people that are in touch with their star nation brothers and sisters and, and how the higher conscious beings of other civilizations throughout the cosmos have exactly these abilities. They are masters of molecular structure, manifestation of molecular structure. And I've just had Samuel Chong on the show who talked about uh, a French Australian man who was abducted. There was a book that came out in the 90s called Abducted to the ninth planet now called the Thai Uber prophecy and these highly conscious beings have all the kind of miraculous abilities that we attribute to people like Jesus or you know to these shamans that it's their everyday mode of operandi it's that's how they operate that they can they understand physics enough that they can yeah walk through walls and melt particle particles and yeah project energy levitate all this sort of stuff so it might be dying out in the shamanism, but it's being re, it's, there's a resurgence in the galactic conversation about these abilities, about the, it is our human potential. And why I love DJ's story is that it's not just about him, it's about the potential we all have inside us, right? We all have that potential yeah. with enough power of focus because he mm -hmm. said he meditated every day and that he still was in contact with his master in spirit. He had, mm. you know, just because the master had left his body didn't mean he'd stop teaching him. So, no. Yeah. And uh, every, I think we all you have see, this potential. Dynamo Jack told us, he says, you know, everybody has this potential. Right. But you know, we all have the ability to learn how to play classical violin. But only a few percent of us we are all. worth teaching it to. <laughs> Uh, yeah I knew it, it's it's just it takes dedication commitment and focus you know Absolutely. we're so we're so focused on what we're going to eat and you know stuff that we're not sort of focused in that direction Absolutely. most of us yeah yeah but oh that was oh, that's interesting that he left his body at the beginning of COVID because that was actually a question that I had posed in my head I wasn't thinking about asking you but you've answered it anyway Lawrence you've read my mind that <laughs> 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 I wonder if he's still alive but thinking he wouldn't and probably thinking that he would have left the planet long ago he must have been quite old when he left his body at the beginning uh, of he would have been 80 two oh. years older than Oh, okay. Because it looked in because you guys looked like you were young boys when you first met him, and he he looked a little bit older. I thought he looked old, a lot I older than you guys. Two years older. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, what did you did you do any of his courses? What did you learn from DJ? What did you come away with? Did you? No. To give people, a, he would touch. We've lost you again. Could see inside them. You could feel this too. If you touch you you could feel this extraordinary energy and he would tell you if it was worth your while studying this stuff and he told me 
that indeed I did have the potential to do it, but it would be seven years before I could begin to move an object. And by then I would have long since lost interest in being able to move objects because of what I had discovered about my own potential on the inside. There you are. But my path was not to do that sort of thing. My path isn't to be, my path is to be a teacher in my work, my mm. art, not to sit still and move objects and blow people's minds and convince them of the ability that they too can do it. Mm. And that's my excuse also, because I wouldn't have the patience yeah yeah you wouldn't have the patience well all of us i think so it was interesting that in the in the documentary in the film uh lawn's eye D, dj was working on his eye and then something happened to your eye what happened to your eye i lost my eye i got a, a cancer oh, uh goodness. in fact it's more complicated than that because of a, you know dj said i don't deal with cancers and i say why not he says because i'm dealing with balance a cancer is like a separate entity in your system is like a rat in the basement. I can empower it and the rat may get bigger. Uh, I can't alter that. I can't kill things in the way that one kills things if one's killing a cancer. So when I had my eye beginning to misbehave, all this gland over here beginning to misbehave, I went to DJ and he said, I'm not going to touch you until I know you don't have cancer. Wow. So I went back to the UK and I had a test there and the people said, no, it's no cancer. It's some tropical inflammation of some form that is now leaving you not to worry about it. So I came back to DJ again and I said, okay, I've got a clean bill of health on cancer. Do your thing. And he put me on the table with his assistants there and he cheed me really powerfully. Mm. Where you jump around. I mean, it's just so strong. Within two weeks, I was in Texas, seeing my sponsors over there giving a series of talks, and it began playing up again. Mm -hmm. And the doctor says, we think it's this very rare cancer, and it's very dangerous. So I went back to the UK, and they said, oh, yeah, so sorry, we didn't see this before, we made a mistake. Uh, it is this cancer, and we better take your eye out really quickly within a month, or we'll have to take your head off within six months. So what DJ had done, or what I rationalize him as having done, as he had amped it up enough for it, appear, for it to appear on the radar of the Western medical system. Oh, uh, so he didn't save my eye, but he saved my life mm. because it's a dangerous, fast-moving cancer that if left for much longer would have killed me and has killed various other people. It's also a rare cancer and it's associated with Caucasians in Indonesia or in these jungles of Southeast Asia for an extended period of time. Wow. So uh, I understand why he doesn't necessarily deal with cancers because he amps them up. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's he fascinating. He told me that of seven people with advanced cancers, if he's let loose on them, he will kill four of them and he will completely cure three of them. Bad odds. He doesn't want to touch <laughs> it at all. <laughs> that's hilarious. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Yep. Wow. Okay. So did you just tell you, I've only felt this energy from two other people ever in my life. Now, Lawrence, One... you're reading my mind again. You see, you're reading me before I get the question out. You're answering my question. There you are. Yeah. Yep. Go on. 
was in Borneo when making that film, The Dream Wanderers of Borneo, where we spent three months in the forest and he was in a shaman of the Punan Dayaks and he touched my head and I got it. Oh, wow. and the other was after a dinner party in Sydney, Australia, mm -hmm. when there was a Chinese fellow there, one of the people who'd been brought over by your prime minister who spent time in China and who speaks Chinese. Oh, yes, I know which one that was. Don't ask me his name, but I know. I know who you're talking about. Not Rudd, is it? Rudd, Rudd, that's him. Rudd, yep, yep. Well, he speaks Chinese, and he also brought some Chinese people over to Australia at the time. Mm. One of them was this fellow who I was at dinner with. After dinner, he says, come next door. I just want to tell you something about Dynamo Jack. And he made me sit down cross-legged on the floor. He sat down in front of me cross-legged on the floor, and he touched my hand. And he said, is it like this? And he went, boom. Definitely the same energy, but not nearly as strong as Dynamo Jack. Wow. So, and of course, he's a Chinese. This was a base. This is a, a originated ancient Chinese technique suppressed during the Cultural Revolution in China. They didn't like any of this sort of stuff. And now any little sparks of it left outside the country, possibly within it. But Dynamo Jack went back to China at one point to try and find the roots of this thing that he'd been brought up into and, and could never find any sign of it. Of course, it would have been snipped out by the Chinese authorities had they found yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yes, it, yeah, it fascinates me. But the application of it being for healing, but not with cancer, because cancer is so rife within the Western world. I don't know about the Eastern yeah, world. Yeah, uh, here too. Yeah, absolutely. Really? Uh, it's interesting. You know, that he... Western food and uh, living a mechanized life increasingly and using cell phones. I mean, you know, now that they're absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that he couldn't, um, he couldn't, you know, deal with cancer, but there are many healers that can. And uh, yeah. And I've seen it even in myself, you know, changing my thoughts have changed my body. So uh, there's a whole education to it, not just the chi education. There's much more to the story. I mean, he he seemed to be proficient in one part of the story, which was that, you know, that focus of chi. But there's a lot more to this, the whole story of, yeah, manipulating molecules and um, masters of molecular manifestation. You've frozen again. We're having fun with the freezing. Well, maybe we'll might wrap it up because Sorry, you, yeah, frozen there, frozen again, yeah. But uh, maybe we'll wrap it up Good because we're having anyway. we're having fun with the internet. But the, it's been absolutely fascinating. I was going to ask when you read my mind, did you meet any other shamans that did sort of um, superhuman things like that in your travels? Well. Uh... Only the, this material stuff, uh, only two. One was, as I say, the Australia, the, in Australia with this Chinese fellow uh, yeah. who had obviously studied the same thing. And then a, a tribal chieftain or a tribal shaman in the heart of Borneo. The rest didn't really, I mean, there are a lot of charlatans and there are a lot yeah. of people who use charlatan techniques to put their patients in the frame of mind where they can heal themselves through belief. That's yeah. another area of medicine, isn't it? Yeah, well, Since I wouldn't call that a charlatan. I... 
I call that deliberate creation. But you living in Bali, if you get sick, do you go to your local shaman? You know, are you surrounded? Because there's a lot of, especially Bali, which is this hub of spirituality and consciousness. There's a lot of healers in Bali. Some, you know, as you say, are charlatans and some are very authentic. Do you go to anybody that... You know, it depends what you get. Because up in Ubud, where I am, if you get bitten by a snake you go to a local shaman because they've been dealing with it for thousands of years. You don't go down to the hospital and expect to get updated anti-venom shots. No, too late. But if you break a bone, you would probably go to, you would go to a local Western trained doctor. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if you break it seriously, like I did 18 months ago during COVID breaking a hip, uh, really quite badly. There's only one man who really does it here, and that's a pretty weird out-of-the-body experience that maybe I'll tell you about on another occasion. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's not as effective. They are better at their traditional forms of medicine than they are at our Western forms of medicine so far. Yeah. So frankly, if it's a serious mechanical thing, we try and get out of the country. If it's a subtler sort of biochemistry thing, a lot can be done here. A lot can be done with the shamans, yeah. And if you go to Bhutan, the wonderful kingdom of Bhutan, they have two hospitals next to each other, as you probably know, traditional medicine and Western medicine. And you can go to either one and they will tell you you're better off with them or you might be better off next door. Right. And I think that is a very enlightened approach to medicine. Well, absolutely. I had this beautiful doctor on the show this week as well, who's Indian descent, born in America, who speaks like Deepak Chopra. You know, he's speaking about consciousness and he said that body is not a thing, body is mind. And he's very esoteric, but he still works in the emergency. He's an emergency doctor. And I asked him, you know, why he's staying inside the allopathic container and not sort of, and he said, because the system needs to change. So I need to bring this education into that system, but yeah. not to negate you know, not to negate what we've done, but to integrate it with this conscious, this expanded consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Transform it from the inside, of course. That's right. much more valuable. It, it says in your bio that you were speaking to people that were very connected to their star nation, the the ETs. Did you did you talk to anybody that talked about their connection with their galactic family, their their lineage? Uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, as I say, the Taraja people of the highlands of Sulawesi, they believe their ancestors came from not just the stars, but from the constellation of the Pleiades in spaceships, not flying saucers, but ships. Right. Not yeah. really defined. Yeah. And they still build their houses in these arc-like beautiful shapes of the vessels they say once brought them. Right. And now, especially when their kings and their aristocracy die, their ritual funeral events are designed to send the soul, the innermost soul of the person back to the stars of their origin. But they believe we've got various, we have several metaphysical layers in us, like onion skins. Mm -hmm. And it's only the most central one that goes back to the stars if it can be released because sometimes these other ones prevent that from happening and those other ones actually belong here in the graveyards in the earth in the hearts and genetic memory of their loved ones 
Well, that's so fascinating, Lawrence, because that completely dovetails with the conversation I was having with Samuel, who was talking about the highly evolved civilization. The this civilization said every lineage on Earth came from another planet. So the blacks and yellows came from one planet and the Caucasians came from another, that we're all from the stars, all our DNA is from the stars, and that when we die, and he called the soul, it had electrons, that, what did he say? I think he said 18% of the electrons stay on earth, and this is what we call ghosts, because they have the memory of who we were, so they're in a form, they're like a thought form, 18%, while the rest of the soul continues back to the original or back to the wherever they go back to different places as many places you can go so that completely dovetails with what he was saying so that's really interesting different language same story yeah, yeah. fascinating oh darling one it's been so beautiful to chat with you today hopefully Thank you. Thank you so much i'll come over to bali and we'll do a better one Useful. without the internet without the internet freezing and we can do a better but it be um, it would be fascinating for you to go and maybe do some lectures down at the pyramids of chi because they get a great um, audience there they do sound healing journeys every day but uh, they also have guest speakers and you could go and do a talk down there maybe so you're in ubud you said you're near ubud my house is in ubud, my house in ubud but to survive covid we have let it out to russian I've lost you again. Uh, my studio and writing place. So I'm on the beach in Legian in the heart of decadence. Oh, so you're down at Legian. Yeah, because you've rented out your wood. Ah, oh, beautiful. Well, Legian. If there's anything I can do, you know, if your daughter needs any help or anything like that, of course, give me a call. Well, darling, you're both adventurous souls. She's an adventurous soul. She's a diver. She's completely immersed in water. She swims with the sharks. She got bitten by a shark a couple of years ago. You know, right. she's a she's a shark survivor. Yeah. She's an adventurous soul. She's like your she's like your Valerie Taylor. <laughs> yes. She's like the young reincarnation of Valerie Taylor. So <laughs> I, I'm sure that you'd have lots to chat about the two of you. So I'll introduce you. Thank you again for coming on the show, Thank Lawrence. You so much. Take care. Lots of love to you and onwards and upwards. Wow, what an amazing man. What an amazing man. What a shame the internet was not, not on our side today, Bali internet. Uh, anyway, hopefully I can edit it together so it doesn't sound too bad. Wasn't the best recording I've ever done, I must say, uh, when it comes to the, the sound and the quality. Pretty shoddy, actually, but that happens in Bali. Uh, yes, we were just talking about Valerie Taylor. I didn't realize Valerie Taylor was still alive in her body, I should say, not alive. But she's a very famous underwater documentary maker, photographer. She's famous all over the world. She's an Australian and she's 85, Lawrence was telling me. And Lawrence was saying that she he's having a cup of tea with her tomorrow because she's in Bali at the moment. She's getting on a boat that belongs to her son or her nephew or somebody and doing another expedition but she's just brought out another book and she's still doing documentaries still diving at 85 still following her passion for the sea and the ocean oh anyway it makes me cry thinking about it and just loving life at 85 who says that 80 is old right and obviously Lawrence is 80 doesn't he look amazing he looks amazing yeah loving life at 80 makes me feel good now that I'm aging <laughs> not liking the idea of getting old but when I meet people you know, like Lawrence and Valerie, who are loving life and following their passion and 
not worrying about being old, not sitting around being old and sick. Makes me feel good about about aging. I think the whole paradigm of aging is changing on our planet. I really do. I really do. Uh, just looking at you know over time, to me, thirty year olds look like teenagers. <laughs> I thought I was so old when I was thirty, but I look at a thirty year old now and they look like children to me. Look like teenagers. They look so young. But I think yeah, we're st we're starting to age. We get older and and age slower. I think. Most people, especially in the conscious community, especially if you meditate, um, meditate, have a clean diet, do some exercise, could do more of that. Yes, and think young, <laughs> stay passionate, stay passionate, stay engaged in your passions. That's the that's the trick to aging for sure, for sure, for sure. But that was just fascinating. Wow, we learned some amazing things from Lawrence. I love to go over to Bali. I just love Bali. Uh, my, as I said, my daughter's over there. And, she said, I said, how are you finding Bali? She got sick, the, you know, for the second day she was there. She said, oh, well, so far, not so great. She said it was very polluted. But yes, I suppose it is. I, I heard that um, during COVID with, when all the tourists went away that a lot of the Indonesians cleaned up a lot of the pollution because the pollution comes from the tourist, basically. Yeah, tourist industry. But it sounds like um, it's all back, back to the way it was, crazy busy david was over there a few weeks ago he said it's crazy busy the airport's packed millions of tourists pollution chaos noise it's all back to the way it was after the shutdowns after the lockdowns so yeah i wonder if anybody learned anything anyway it's a beautiful place it's one of it's a beautiful place bali is just a magical magical place love it all right i'm gonna go that was beautiful Ah, the beautiful Lawrence Blair. And um, I sort of slotted that in this week because I already had a show booked this week. I did with uh, with Anoop Kumar, Dr. Anoop Kumar, who I've just uploaded yesterday. This I'll upload in a couple of days. Who we, we talked about healing. Healing is possible and how he's sharing healing stories on his podcast show. He's the ER doctor that speaks like Deepak Chopra, talks about consciousness and who we are beyond the identity of our personality and our form this boundless, unlimited, infinite creative potential of who we are as consciousness and source and extension of the source. Fascinating. I loved that conversation with him. So a couple of shows up this week. So remember to check out both of them and uh, I'll catch you next time. Not sure who's coming up in the Inner Sanctum next week. I haven't heard from Marina because I've had to change the dates because a lot's happening in September. Lots of things are happening in September for me. So I'm not sure I'll be in there at one stage. At the first weekend of September, I'll be online, which is a Sunday morning here in Australia, a Saturday afternoon night in the US if you want to join me. And Marina might be joining me as well. I've had to, um, I had a booked in a week or so after that, but I've, um, I'll be away, so I can't do it with her. So anyway, we might get her online, we might not, but I'll be online if you want to come in and meet me and hear my stories and all the people that I've met. Thanks again for listening and watching and sharing the shows and subscribing. And remember, check out the book Awakened by Death. If you haven't already, see you next time. Bye for now.